Everybody say Leviticus. Who preaches out of Leviticus? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so some of you are asking, why Leviticus? I have never heard a sermon out of Leviticus. I've never heard a preacher tell one or chair one or why are we doing it now? I'm telling you why. It is one of the most exciting books in the entire Bible. We all know that we are saved by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and everything that God has been doing since the fall of man is to bring about redemption through the cross. But you realize while the cross is the source of our salvation, the cross is the substance of our salvation, the Old Testament is full of the shadows of the cross, shadows of our salvation. And so Leviticus is a place where Jesus is seen on every single page as Moses takes up pen and he begins to write pictures about what God would do one day for men. And what we're studying is the five offerings of the ancient Hebrews. We learn in Leviticus that God's prepared for us a sacrifice, a priest, and a place. And we're currently studying the sacrifices of the ancient Hebrews. And what we learned last time is the five offerings of these ancient Hebrews are shadows of the cross, with each one representing a different aspect of Christ's life and Christ's death. And so we're seeing these four shadows through the book of Leviticus, through these five offerings. Jesus would embody all of these offerings 2,000 years ago as he hung up on a cross, beginning with that first offering we studied last week, the burnt offering. Remember, the burnt offering was completely consumed on the altar. It was reduced to ash in the fire that was on the altar because that's a picture of what Jesus would become for us. He was completely consumed in the fire of God's wrath. He paid our penalty. He took our place. He took our punishment. When he said, it is finished, it is completely finished. Finished. It was a blood offering because Jesus would shed his blood for our sin. 1 John 1, 8, there is no, you see, cleansing of sin without the blood of Jesus Christ upon our sin. And this is why Jesus would say these words in John 5, 46. He was looking at the Pharisees who did not believe in him, who did not trust and believe that he really was the Messiah that had been prophesied century after century. And he said these words, if you believe Moses, you believe me me, for he wrote about me. Now, the Pharisees would have studied the Torah. The first five books of the Bible are the books of Moses. They would have memorized them. They would have known them intricately and intimately. And he's looking at the Pharisees who did not believe in him and say, look, if you just believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, you can look at the first five books of the Bible, what the Jews called the Torah, and you won't find the name Jesus anywhere on any page. It's not there. So if indeed Moses wrote about him, but Moses never penned that name Jesus, then obviously what Jesus is teaching is he wrote about him in foreshadows. He wrote about him in word pictures, and that's what these offerings are. They are word pictures of what God would one day through when he sent the Son to die for me and for you. And so we studied the burnt offering last time. Now remember, these offerings came in an order specifically because God is painting a picture of what Jesus Jesus would do at Calvary. So the burnt offering always came first. It's the foundation for every other offering that is on the way. Now after the burnt offering would come the grain offering. Leviticus 2 and verse 1. If you're ready for this, say fearless. fearless. All right, here we go. Without fear. Leviticus 2 and verse 1. Look at what it says. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, 
His offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. So right after the burnt offering came what's called the meal offering or the grain offering. Now, you may look at all this today, and you see the oven up here again today, and you think, well, gee, I think I feel like instead of coming to church, I must have come to a cooking show. Like, this is a reality TV show. What are we doing? Hell's Kitchen today. All right, relax. I'm not Gordon Ramsay. There will be no cussing in the kitchen. What I have here, though, is all the ingredients of a grain offering. That's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to put a grain offering together like those ancient Hebrews, and we're going to see each element, how they are shadows. They are pictures of what Jesus will one day do, beginning with the second offering of the ancient Hebrews, the grain offering. Now, I want you to remember the grain offering was the only bloodless offering because it does not speak of Christ's death, but rather his life, his sinless life, where the burnt offering was a blood offering. The grain offering was a bloodless offering because the burnt offering spoke of Christ's death, but the grain offering speaks of his life, his sinless life, the sinless life of the bread of life, the sinless life, you see, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is this is the same offering that Cain would bring in Genesis chapter 4. A lot of you have know the story. You've heard of the story. Even if you haven't been in church, you've heard of Cain and Abel, Right? Uh, it's the story of the first ever murder, the first ever recorded homicide, how Cain murdered his brother Abel as a jealous, angry brother. Now, here's the reason why. Here's what's going on. From the earliest days of humanity, God was teaching the way you come before him and are accepted of him is through the blood of a lamb. We come before God for one reason. We are worthy for one reason, because of the blood of the lamb. So Abel brought a burnt offering, a blood offering, but it was his brother Cain that brought a grain offering. And you know the story. God rejected Cain's offering, but received Abel's offering. Here's what it says in Genesis 4. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Now I want you to see all the shadows right here. In the earliest moments of humanity, God is teaching through these shadows, through these pictures. Abel is a shadow of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was a shepherd. Uh, it says in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. First Peter 5, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Abel is a shepherd. And check this out. His blood is going to be shed by an angry, jealous brother. That's exactly what happened to Jesus as a shepherd. His blood was shed by an angry, jealous brother. In John 1.11, he came into his own, and his own received him not. They shed his blood for the same reason that Cain would shed the blood of his brother Abel. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain, a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. He brought a grain offering. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. He brought the burnt offering. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. What God is teaching here is you always come by way first of the burnt offering before you can present the grain offering. People look at this passage, and sometimes we look at the story of Cain and Abel, and we think, well, God just wasn't very fair here. I mean, he, he wouldn't receive Cain's. He received Abel's. I mean, this seems like favoritism. I mean, God was just having a bad day, wasn't he? I mean, that's sometimes what people think about this story. 
But I want you to see, both of these sons of Adam and Eve knew exactly when to come, knew exactly where to come, and knew exactly how to come. God had told both of them when, where, and how to come. Now I want you to notice, Cain was really religious. He was more religious than his brother Abel. He got to church first that day. I mean, he got on the front row. Abel shows up last. He's running late that day to church. and He, he gets the back row, right? But yet God receives Abel's offering but rejects Cain's offering. Here's the reason why. Cain thought that he could come to God and be accepted by God because of the fruit of the land, by the sweat of his brow, and by the work of his hands. And God was teaching him, no, you come first by the blood of a lamb. You don't come merely by the labor of your hand. You see, that is the religion of Cain and the religion of Abel. God is teaching that each and every one of us down through history, from the moment of the fallen humanity, we come before God based on one thing, the burnt offering, the blood of a lamb. You cannot be accepted before God based on the works of your hand. You see, God cannot receive your grain offering until you come come first by way of the burnt offering, you don't get to heaven based on one thing you do for God. You get to heaven based solely on what God has done for you. Yes. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, the grain offering is about the works of your hand and the sweat of your brow. Cain was saying, God, you will accept me because I plowed the ground, I planted the ground, I sweated for this ground, and I now bring in you the works of my hand. And God is saying, no, Cain, I cannot receive the works of your hand until you first come to me based on the blood of a lamb. You see, that's the religion of Cain and the religion of Abel. Did you know that every single world religion today is either the religion of Cain or the religion of Abel? Christianity is unique among all world religions. You know why? Because Christianity, in its truest form, never ever leaves you with a list of things to do, hoping to appease God, hoping somehow to please God, hoping somehow to earn your way to him, to earn your way into heaven. No. Every other religion leaves you with a list of things to do, and hopefully you're working off the right list. You see, that is the religion of Cain, hoping to work your way into heaven. And look at what the apostle Jude would say. In Jude 11, it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. He's speaking here of false teachers who would teach that there's something more you have to do besides what God has already done for you. Woe to those false teachers that would distort the gospel and make it a gospel of works that would say you've got to bring a grain offering of your life and the labor of your life and keep a list of things to do to be pleasing before God. No, the reality is it's based only on the burnt offering, the blood offering of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that is why God is very specific in the order of these offerings. The burnt offering always comes first and the grain offering always comes second because the burnt offering is God's work for you where the grain offering is your work for God. Now, if you see it, do like this. If, if you don't see it, do like this. 
All right, we're doing next week something we call the well, 4.30 Sunday afternoons over in the core, a deeper dive. I'm doing four weeks and only four weeks out of the book of Leviticus on Sunday mornings. You wanna take this farther? Verse by verse, line by line, for the rest of the year, 4.30, over in the core, we call it the well, because we're taking a deep dive, and we're gonna drink deeply from the book of Leviticus. It's an open Q&A kind of Bible study, because there's a lot coming at you I know you've never heard before. But I want you to see the picture, honestly, I think is easy. You see, the burnt offering always came first, because God cannot accept your work until you've accepted Christ's work. And once you've accepted Christ's work, now God can accept your work. Until you've received the burnt offering and gone through the blood of the lamb, God cannot receive your offering, the grain offering. And that is what God is now teaching as we study the grain offering. Now remember, these offerings picture Jesus and what he has done for us, but they also picture us and what we're now to do for him. Leviticus 9, uh, Hebrews 9.22 tells us that according to the law, almost all things are purified by blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Some people ask, well, why is it that God demands blood for us to be forgiven of our sin? Leviticus 17, 11 gives us the answer. The life of the flesh is in the blood. See, it had to be the blood of an innocent man to reverse the curse of sin for all men. It was Adam's sin that brought down the curse of sin for all men. Only the death of an innocent man could reverse the curse of sin for all men. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. It had to be the life-giving blood that gives us life, and so it had to be the blood that would reverse the curse that took our life. And so consequently, you have here Hebrews 9.22 quoting from the book of Leviticus. Remember I told you last week, while the book of Leviticus is largely ignored by the modern church, sometimes outright rejected by the modern church, Jesus and the apostles quoted more from the book of Leviticus than any other Old Testament book. It must be really important if Jesus quoted from it and the apostles quoted from it over 40 times in the New Testament. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. First John 1, 8, it says, we are cleansed of our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the blood of a lamb. Now, Leviticus chapter two and verse one, we're gonna take this line by line and with every single stroke of Moses' pen, I want you to see the painting emerging, the picture of what Jesus would do at Calvary, the shadow of the cross, foreshadowing 2,000 years later, uh, actually 1,400 years later, what Jesus himself would fully embody. And remember, that's also a picture of us and what we're to do for him. It says, when any of you offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Now I want you to see this offering was a fine flour. That ancient Hebrew would take that grain and they would begin to grind it into fine powder, fine flour, because this flour was a type of flour with which they would make bread. Now as I thought about this this week, I thought of something I never thought about before. As God is delivering to them the Levitical law through the hand of Moses, think about the trust and the faith this would have required. Uh, we were just here in the very place that Moses had brought the children of Israel through the Wadi Moji, uh, the Valley of Moses, the very place just a few weeks ago that Moses brought them from Mount Sinai 
toward the promised land. Now I want you to look at this and you tell me, you think to yourself, does this look like a place people grow grain? Does this look like a place people would grow wheat? Uh, here's the Wadi Moji, the very valley of Moses. It's still known today in southern Jordan. And this is the valley that Moses led the children of Israel from Mount Sinai toward the promised land. And I thought about this for a moment. Wait a minute. This is the very place that God is delivering to them the Levitical law. Can you imagine the trust this would have taken to bring to God their grain? Because this is not a place full of grain. No, they're going to the land flowing of milk and honey. They're going to a place of fertility. But as God is delivering to them this law, what he wants this offering, they don't have any place to grow this grain. This grain would have been grain they took with them from Egypt. This would have been their field seed. And every farmer knows you don't eat your field seed. You don't sacrifice your field seed. Your field seed is what you're going to sow in the field hoping to get a harvest. This was the seed they brought with them from Egypt knowing one day they were going to be in the promised land and they were going to plant this seed and this seed was the plant that they were going to use to take care of their families. Now God is telling them, I want you to sacrifice your seed. I want you to give that seed to me. I want you to trust me completely and they would take that field seed instead of sowing it in the land that would flow with milk and honey to take care of their family and they were going to sacrifice it to God personally remember this is a free will offering the first three offerings were not mandated these were free will offerings these were free will voluntary acts of worship because worship that isn't freely given isn't worship Check this out. God is not demanding you to do anything for him. He wants your desire, not merely your duty. And that's what worship is. Now, I want you to bring this offering of fine flour because this fine flour is nothing less than a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grain offering foreshadows Jesus as the bread of life. And sometimes they would bring this grain and it would be raw grain, finely, finely ground powder. Or sometimes they would bake it into bread because this grain offering pictures not the death of Christ, but the life of Christ. He would say these words in John 6, 34. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst because I am the bread of life. You see, Jesus is the bread of life and that is often how he would describe himself, the unleavened bread, that sinless bread, the bread of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so think about that ancient Hebrew. They were now sacrificing their filled seed instead of saving it and holding on to it and hoarding it to one day plant in those fields of fertility in that promised land that flowed with milk and honey. They're now taking a portion of it and sacrificing it to the Lord voluntarily and think about the labor. Now, we, we have a hard time doing this or understanding this today because, you know, it's really easy to go to the grocery store and just buy a loaf of bread. Uh, it is easy to go to the grocery store and just buy a sack of flour. But imagine the ancient Hebrew as an act of your worship, you take that grain and you personally begin to grind it. You personally begin to work it. You, you are grinding it to powder, fine flour. And that is a picture of Jesus. Check this out. It tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. You see, it says in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it pleased the Lord 
Lord to crush him. Do you realize that God chose to crush his own son and grind him to powder so he would not have to crush you instead? And you see this now being ground to powder, this grain offering, because Jesus is that unleavened, sinless sacrifice. He is that bread of life, and he took all of our sin, our shame, our blame. And for some of us here, this is where we are today. Remember, it's a picture of us. Some of us think, I feel like my life is being ground to powder. I mean, I feel like I am absolutely being bruised and wounded. No, listen carefully. God is trying to take you and remake you and shape you into the image of his son. Philippians 3 and verse 10, it says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Now everybody stops right there with that verse, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. How many of you want to live in the power of the resurrected Christ? Yeah, I want to live in the power of the resurrection. I want to live a supernatural life, not a natural life. How about you? All right, but check this out. You gotta get to the rest of the verse, Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed even unto his death. You see, there's a process of you becoming like the bread of life, and it begins at times through the trials and suffering of life that you're going to be ground to powder like fine flour. You see, God is doing in your life everything to conform you to the image of his son. The sinless son of God came like the sons of men so that the sons of men could become like him. And you have here a picture of the bread of life. Now let's take it a little farther. And, he shall be a, and it shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it. So that Old Testament priest, he would reach in, take some of this fine flour, and he'd prepare it then for the altar. And uh, he would take it. Sometimes he would bake it. Sometimes he'd make bread out of it. Other times he'd just prepare it for the altar raw. And it was going to be a fine flour. And then he would take the oil and he would put some oil on it. Now, most of you know that oil is a picture of what in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Man, Leviticus is hard to understand, isn't it? Do you see the shadow? You got oil here that's a shadow of the Holy Spirit because the oil pictures the anointing of the Holy Spirit on both Christ's life and our life. You have Matthew 3.16 at Jesus' baptism, and it says the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. How about you and me? On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, what did Jesus promise would happen to me and to you? It says you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, God is teaching you cannot offer him a grain offering, which is the labor of your life, until it has been empowered by the unction and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, do you have the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life? Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What Paul is teaching is you can't be filled with the Spirit to be empowered by the Spirit until you have surrendered yourself wholly and completely and exclusively to God's sovereignty until you come to determination that Jesus has a right to rule my life and his rule in my life is always right. And when you finally surrender completely and you make your burnt offering, all of a sudden I will promise you, you 
you are filled with the Spirit as you've laid down your life. Now you can take it up in life. All of a sudden, you've gone through the cross and you have gone through the agony of the crucifixion. That's your burnt offering. So now you can live in the power of the resurrection. But you see, you don't get to the power of the resurrection until you go by way of the crucifixion. You don't get to the grain offering until you go through the burnt offering. All right, now look at what else it says. Every stroke of the pen, the picture, the shadow emerges. It says this, he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Now, remember, these are sweet aroma offerings as opposed to the mandatory offerings of the sin offering and trespass offering, which we'll talk about in two weeks. Those were non-sweet aroma offerings. No incense, no frankincense were burned with them. All that you would have smelled was the stench of burning flesh because they represent the ugliness of sin, the ruin of sin. But these offerings represent the beauty of reconciliation, the beauty of redemption. And so that Old Testament priest, after having put oil on it, he would then take some frankincense and put some frankincense on it. And when the frankincense would hit the fire, it would fill the tabernacle with this beautiful aroma. And that is what God wants to do with your life. Listen, the stench of sin is upon our life. But when you've surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you start to live the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your life becomes in some way a sweet aroma of the sinless bread of life. You see, frankincense in ancient days was there to prepare the dead for burial. This is how they prepared the body of the Lord Jesus for burial. And they would make the frankincense a residue or a gummy type of material, and it would prepare the dead for burial. Like Jesus, we become a sweet aroma by freely offering up our lives. Listen, when you have surrendered your life and you've died to your life, all of a sudden you have the power now to take up the life, and all of a sudden you start living in the power of the resurrected Christ. But it all begins with a burial. Today is a day, if you've never done this before, to go to a funeral, and there's one funeral that will change your life forever, and that funeral has to be yours. Listen, for some of us here, we are living short of the promised land. We are living short of what Jesus called life abundantly because we have failed to live life biblically. We have failed to live life obediently and you cannot live life abundantly. Listen carefully. Until you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, you cannot live in the power of the resurrected Christ. Today is the day to go to a burial and that burial has to be yours. There's the burnt offering. But after the burnt offering comes the grain offering. Do you really want to live? Listen carefully. To the degree you have died is the degree you will be fully alive. If your marriage has died, it's because two people have chosen to live as though they're alive. You want to resurrect your marriage? Watch this. Both of you choose to die, and I will promise you, God will resurrect your marriage alive. And that is true of every single area of our life. 
And you see, this frankincense would speak of a burial. It would speak specifically of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. But after the burial would come the resurrection. Now look at Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now I want you to notice something. So many New Testament passages we've taken for granted, we've read over and over again, because people either completely ignore the book of Leviticus or outright reject the book of Leviticus, reread phrases like this in the New Testament, and we don't even get it. It goes right over the top of our heads. What's Paul referring to here? In the New Testament, what he's referring to here is the burnt offering. Jesus laid down his life as an offering and a sacrifice so that he could become a sweet-smelling aroma, the sweet aroma, the sweet aroma of the burnt offering, the sweet aroma of the grain offering. And he's saying, listen, as Jesus did for you, now you are now to do too. And as you lay down your life, the burnt offering, then you can take it up again and become a grain offering. And that is when all of a sudden your life begins to have the sweet fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the fragrance and aroma of Christ begins to follow you around all of your life and there's a sweet aroma in your neighborhood because you live there. There's a sweet aroma in the workplace because you work there. There's a sweet aroma where you go to school because you go to school there. There's a sweet aroma in your home because that's where you live. You see all of a sudden that aroma is the aroma of life because it's the aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is being released in your life. Check this out. Jesus lives in you. I mean literally it's not allegory but he doesn't just want to live in you. He wants to live through you. And that's Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. There's the burnt offering. Nevertheless, I live. There's the grain offering. And all of a sudden, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, look at this, it goes on, now watch this. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. So the priest wouldn't take all the offering, he would just take a handful of it. You know why? Because it tells us that he would only take part of it. He would not take all of it. You see, God owns our entire life, but he only takes a handful. See, the reason why people don't offer God all their life, all that they are, all that they have, is because deep down we think God is going to take it all. And if God takes it all, what's going to be left for me? Well, if I offer God all of my money, I mean, everybody thinks about the tithe. No, check this out. God just, he doesn't just care about the tenth. He cares about 100%. It all belongs to him. Well, well, what about my energy? I mean, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I consider energy a commodity. Like, I still have not caught up from jet lag, and I've been back for over a week from Israel, right? And all of a sudden, energy is a commodity, something we have the least of is time. I want you to see that God owns it all. All of our life belongs to him, but when we offer it all to him, he's only gonna take a handful for him. 
See, he will always make sure you've got enough left for you. Matthew 6, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour, oil with the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. He now put it in the fire on the altar. Check this out. Listen carefully. He's going to burn it as a memorial on the altar. As our life goes through the refiner's fire, we naturally begin living increasingly like Christ. And so there are times that that priest would take it and he would bake it. Look at me. I got this stuff all over me. This does look like a cooking show now, doesn't it? There, now, now I look the part, don't I, huh? I just need an apron. All right, so he, he would take it and make it, he'd make the dough out of it. Sometimes that ancient worshiper would actually bring it, and that ancient worshiper has actually already made it. He's got the dough, and it was flatbread. You go to the Middle East today, mostly what you see is flatbread because it's unleavened bread. Both Muslims and Jews consider leaven sin. And so it would be unleavened bread. And I want you to see something. He'd take it and they'd begin to shape it. You see, the reality is God wants to shape our lives. He wants to remake our lives into the image of his son. And so he begins to take us and he begins to shape us. And then check this out. Eventually, the only way we can become like him is he puts us in the fire. He puts us through the furnace. And for some of us here today, this is where we are. God, why would you allow this in my life? I cannot believe you would allow, if you really love me, why did you let me lose my job? If you really love me, why would you allow me to lose my baby? And you're in this oven, this furnace, this fire of life, the trials of life. And I'm trying to tell you what God does through the trials of life is he is remaking you and he is baking you so that you become like the bread of life. You see, that is the goal in all of these sacrifices. Yes, they are embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you and I, we are to embody them in some way in all of our lives. And for some of us, we are indeed in the altar, in the fiery furnace, and God hasn't abandoned you, and God hasn't forgotten about you. God infinitely and unconditionally loves you, but he is determined, though he loves you the way you are, not to leave you just the way you are. What is the goal of God's in your life. The goal of God in your life is Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. And it's in the trials of life, the fires of life, that we're being conformed to his image. Now look, the rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord. I want you to see, the rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. So the Levites had no provision, they had no land. They were the priestly tribe, and because they couldn't work the land and sow grain for their families, part of these offerings, except the burnt offering, was to provide for them food, literally. And so they would consecrate part of the grain offering, and then the priest would keep part of it to eat, literally. It was their dinner. And I want you to see what this teaches us. The first fruits of a man's labor belong to God. What is left provided for their needs. 
Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Here's the reality. For some of us, our life is not filled with plenty and the reason why is we have not been obediently, not completely, with our first fruits. We hold back the best and we give God what is the rest. And God is saying, I want the very best of your time. I want the best of your ability. I want the best of your opportunity. I want the best of what you have financially. If you will give me the first fruits of your time, your talent, and your treasures, I will make sure you always have what you need. I will provide, I promise, for your family. Now look at what it says in Leviticus 2.11. What you have in verses 4 through 10 is the different types of grain offerings. Sometimes it would be raw grain. Sometimes it would be like cakes that were baked, sometimes on an open fire, like, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love, um, basically, this this fired pizza, right? I mean, it's great, it has that smoky fire thing on it, right? And what it looks like to me, I don't know about you, but God loves bread. (laughs) God is not into the Whole30 thing, apparently, which I've always found kind of curious. You know, people have lived on bread for thousands of years, but all of a sudden, it's bad for you. Come on. Obviously, any diet that doesn't include bread is unbiblical. I'm just saying. I am teasing now, completely joking. Strike that, okay? That's just Phil being goofy, all right. I want you to see, though, what's going on here. No leaven with any of these offerings. And most of you know that leaven in scripture is a picture of sin. You know what God is saying? As we become increasingly like Christ, in this life, tied to this fallen flesh, you may never be sinless, but you will naturally begin sinning less and less and less and less. Where sin can become the exception We just sing about it, I'm free, free, forever I'm free. Listen, Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. You don't have to live in mediocrity, you don't have to live in complete captivity because you've been set free by what Jesus did at Calvary. That means you can live a life that is holy and pursue a life that is holy. Listen, we need to get the leaven out of our lives. This is why the Jews would eat unleavened bread. None of the leaven would ever touch any of these offerings because leaven is a picture of sin. And if we are indeed followers of Christ who is holy, it only makes sense as followers of Christ that we too pursue lives that are holy. And I will promise you for some of us, we're not living a life that is happy. You know why? Because you have not pursued a life that is holy. You believe a lie of the enemy. And when you try to be happy apart from being holy, I will promise you every time you will be neither holy nor happy. Sin always brings death. It always brings ruin. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor honey. What is going on with honey? Listen, the Bible is self-interpreting. This isn't really that much of a mystery. Revelation 10.10 tells us that honey is a shadow of God's word. It's a picture of God's word. And check it out. God's word need not go through the refiner's fire. It's pure already. Now look at what he says here. 
As for the offering of the first fruits, ye shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma, and every offering of your grain offering ye shall season with salt. Ye shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking for your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. What is going on with salt, the salt covenant? Listen, in the ancient days, salt was a universal preservative, and God is teaching through the salt that our lives should be preserved from corruption and decay. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, you're the salt of the earth. Our lives as followers of Jesus should preserve society from utter decay. That salt should preserve society from corruption and from erosion. You see, salt is a picture of the truth. And as God sprinkles our lives daily with the salt of his word, it preserves our lives from sin and corruption. This is a preservation. God is promising a salt covenant in ancient days. When you made a covenant of salt, you were saying it is binding. It's unbreakable. And this covenant God has made with us through what Jesus did at Calvary, it is binding. It's irrevocable. It can never, ever be broken because Jesus once and for all died for our sin. And you know what would happen after they would bake that unleavened cake? It was no longer dough, it had become bread. And you know what this picture is? This picture is what Jesus would do on the night before his death, as he was taking the Passover with his Jewish disciples. It says he took the bread, that unleavened bread, that picture of him, the bread of life. It says he would break it, and begin to pass it out to them and said, this is my body broken for you this do in remembrance of me. Let me ask you, have you ever partaken of that bread of life that was broken for you? Has there ever been a time in your life that you received seriously by faith what Jesus did at Calvary? And you put all of your faith in him, repenting of your sin. That's how you take of this bread that was broken for you. He gave his body to be broken, his body to be bruised, his body to be bloodied. He took our pain, he took our shame, our every single sin, our every single stain. He was bruised to buy our freedom. He was flogged to ease our pain. And by his stripes, we are healed. And so can I ask you today, seriously, has there been a time in your life that you received the bread of life broken for you? I'm not talking about a list of religious things to do. That is the way of Cain. I'm talking about putting your faith in what Jesus has done for you. That is the way of Abel. Jesus, I pray for every person here that God, not one today, would leave this place without knowing the security, the certainty, the joy of that heavenly destiny. I pray, God, that today you would not let one put their head on their pillow tonight without knowing with certainty their destination eternally. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were our burnt offering at Calvary because you were the grain offering, that sinless life, that unleavened bread that you could be broken for sin. 
With every head bowed, listen, I'm gonna be coming down off this platform. I'm gonna stand right here in the front and I'm here to minister to anybody here personally. If you're not certain today that you're ready for heaven, if you don't know today your destination, as others are leaving this auditorium, I'm gonna ask you to wait and you stay. And together, let's pray. Would you give Jesus the glory with me today? Praise him, would you? He's worthy, isn't he?